If you take God's precious word now and turn to the book of Titus, and God willing, we'll go ahead and get into the scriptures and uh, be expounding verse 7 this morning. Titus chapter 1, verse 7. And last week we began looking at the qualifications of a pastor. And the first qualification was that a pastor must be blameless. Remember that? And we learned that being blameless is not the same as being faultless. Every person has faults. But a pastor must be spiritually mature and submissive to the Word of God, especially in certain areas of his life, uh, because how he handles himself in some areas of his personal life at home will have a direct impact on how he behaves in his spiritual life at church. Uh, In verse 6 last week, if you'll look there, Paul told Titus, a pastor had to be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. So a pastor must be a man. uh, First and foremost, we learned that he can't be a woman. He's got to be a man. And if that man has more than one wife, or if he lets his children run, run wild when they live under his roof, then he is not blameless in that respect. So what else would make a man not be blameless according to God's Word? What else would disqualify a man from being a pastor? We'll go ahead and look with me now in verse 7, and we'll continue our exposition of this passage of Scripture. Uh, Paul said, For a bishop must be blameless. Now, if you take your pens here and underscore the word bishop, bishop. The word bishop means superintendent or overseer. Now, if you look back with me in verse 5, please, in verse 5, and underscore the word elders, elders. So while giving the qualification of elders, Paul uses the word bishop interchangeably. Do you see that? And so we learn here an elder is a bishop because an elder oversees the church. Make sense? It's just a description of that office. An elder is also a pastor because an elder feeds the church. Okay? So don't get confused with these titles here. So I think we can understand the elder as the office and the bishop and pastor as the actions that a man takes in the role of being an elder. An elder is a bishop because they oversee the church. An elder is a pastor because they feed the church. Now, in our Baptist culture today, we usually call the elder a pastor. That's just what we do in our culture. And that's biblical, of course. An elder is a pastor, but it would also be biblical to call the pastor uh, a bishop or simply call him an elder. The word pastor is used more in the Old Testament to describe spiritual leaders than it is in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used once in the New Testament. I think it's kind of interesting that in the New Testament you only see it one time, yet that's usually what we call uh, an elder is a pastor in our in our culture today, at least here in America. Uh, the Greek word translated pastor means shepherd, okay, because he feeds the flock. 
And it's only found once in the, in the New Testament again, and that's in Ephesians chapter 4. Every other time you see that word, it's referring to shepherds that are actually watching over real sheep. Four-footed sheep, not the two-footed sheep that we have here. So if you want to get technical about it, Pastor Shepherd here, we could call him Shepherd Shepherd. How about that? My first pastor, his name was Grover Bishop. You could have called him Bishop Bishop, right? So I don't know how I wound up being acquainted with people with those names like that, but that's really how it is. So to sum it up, an elder is a pastor and an elder is a bishop. They're the same thing. We use them interchangeably, just as today we would say preacher, pastor, or minister. Make sense? All right, Paul told Titus to ordain elders or pastors or bishops, same thing. But here's what you will never find being ordained in the New Testament church. You will never find a man being ordained to the office of a priest. You'll never find that in Scripture. Because Jesus Christ now is our high priest. And every believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says are priests under Christ. They're priests because of Him. Thank God we don't have to go through that Old Testament system any longer because now we go to the Father through Jesus the Son. So you'll never find a priest in the New Testament church. It's never found in the Scriptures. Not one time. And any person claiming to be a priest today... Now, again, you and I are priests in the sense, again, we can offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. We can go straight to the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in that sense, we're priests. But if you ever find someone who claims to be a priest today, in the sense that you must go through that person to be saved, have your sins forgiven, uh, like in the Catholic Church, that person is a fraud. It's a fraud. And while we're on the subject... You'll never find a cardinal or a nun or a pope being ordained the Bible. Not one little time. Not even in some of the new translations. It's not in there. And out of all the pastoral epistles that we have that deal specifically in the Bible with, with addressing the leadership of the church, and out of all the other epistles in the Bible and the Gospels in the Bible, none of them ever mention these offices. None, Pope, priest, except for under the Old Testament system, cardinal, uh, you just don't see it. If there was a Pope, if there ever was supposed to be a Pope, you would think that somebody would have told us in the Bible about it, don't you think? <laughs> but you'll never find it in God's Word. According to Catholics now, if you didn't know this, Catholics believe that the Apostle Peter was the first Pope. And we all have never heard that before. I'm curious. Several hands going up. They think the Apostle Peter was the first Pope. Uh, but Paul, if you'll remember one time, Paul had to rebuke Peter. Because of how Peter was treating the Gentile believers. Y'all remember that? 
And, uh, and, and Paul told us of all about how he had to get on Peter's case about how he treated the Gentile believers. And Paul said that when Jesus called him to be an apostle, he said immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. In other words, Jesus called me to be an apostle. I didn't go ask other people in the church about it. I went and did what Jesus told me to do. Now, the other apostles eventually recognized Paul as an apostle among that number, but he didn't confer with flesh and blood. Blood. And if Peter was the Pope, if Peter was in charge of all the church and all the subordinate apostles under him, you would think that Peter would have at least told somebody about it, don't you think? He had two epistles here, uh, but we don't see Paul kissing Peter's ring. We see Paul rebuking Peter. <laughs> we don't see Paul asking Peter for permission to go on uh, his uh his uh, missionary journeys or whatever. And so even though the church endorsed all of that, but Peter never mentioned one time in his epistles that he was the Pope. Peter preached not himself, but Christ Jesus the Lord. There simply was no papal order in the church, and there isn't one today. It is an invention of man and has no place in the church of Jesus Christ, which is why we don't see it in these pastoral epistles. Peter, Paul, James, John, none of them ever mention, oh, and by the way, Pope Peter said. <laughs> or, or none of them say, now when, when the apostle Peter passes away, here's what you do to elect a new pope. None of us ever mention, see. It's all man-made. Now that we've been introduced to the word bishop and how it relates to the office of an elder, Paul said a bishop or an elder must be blameless. How? He said they must be blameless. Look back in your text now. As the steward of God. As the steward of God. Now the word steward means fiduciary. Fiduciary. And I know that's a word that we don't always use a lot today. I know a lot of you are, are very familiar with the term. Some of you may have never heard it at all, but a fiduciary uh, uh, is what a pastor is. I am a fiduciary of the church of Jesus Christ. A fiduciary is someone who manages another person's assets. That's what a fiduciary is, a person who manages another person's assets. I know, um, I think you use Edward Jones, don't you, Miss Ann? I thought so. If any of y'all know anything about money, just see Miss Ann over here. But I know she talked to me before about, you know, her financial planner being Edward Jones. And, and you've got Edward Jones all over the place, those financial people. But if you go down to Edward Jones or you were to go down to a, a financial planner, this is just an example. And you were to give them some of your money to invest uh, for your future retirement. Then that financial planner is acting as a fiduciary a steward for you because they are managing money that belongs to somebody else. When you serve as a fiduciary, the law actually requires you to act in the best interest of the person that you represent. In fact, in the state of Texas, if your financial, uh, your financial advisor, let's say you took your money down to Edward Jones and, and the representative you gave your money to decided to take his family on vacation with that money, or buy a new boat with that money, that person could be arrested for misapplication of fiduciary funds. 
You've seen that in the penal code, I'm sure. So when Paul is saying an elder must be blameless as the steward of God, he's saying that as we place our earthly treasures into the hands of a financial planner, for example, so God places the treasures of His church into the hands of elders that He sets over that church. And those elders, those pastors, have to remember that they are managers of somebody else's treasure. Pastors are not the owners of the church. They are the managers and overseers of it. So an elder has to make sure that his management of the church is always in the best interest of Christ's kingdom. Always according to the instructions that God has given him in the Bible. If Miss Ann told Edward Jones, I want my money to go here, I don't want it to go over here, and he needs to do as he's instructed. But if the man cannot be trusted to act as a steward, then he is not blameless. Or if he is already a pastor not behaving as a steward, then the pastor is not blameless. I was talking to Brother Billy earlier about filling some potholes here in the parking lot of the church. And suppose that... Uh, as a, as a pastor, let's suppose that he got someone to uh, fill those potholes or he gets them a load of asphalt or whatever and he's going to fill those potholes. And I say, now, Brother Billy, here's what I'd like for you to do. Um, get a little extra. Get a little more than what the church needs. And, uh, and uh, I've, I've got a driveway here that won't you come patch that dri- my driveway up with the rest of it and we'll just let the church pay for all of it and we'll keep that between me and you. I wouldn't be acting as a fiduciary, would I? I'd be a misapplication of fiduciary funds, you see. Uh, and uh, because God's money is supposed to be used for God's work. Uh, but do you know, so, so if you've got a pastor that's, that's not scrupulous with money like that, he has no business being a pastor. But, do you know what the greatest treasure of God's church is? It's not what's, it's not what's in these plates, it's what's out here in these pews. That's the greatest treasure of God's church, is the people that Jesus died for. And a pastor has to remember that those people don't belong to him. They're Jesus' treasure. He's the one that bought and paid for them, right? They were purchased with his blood. It's the people Jesus died for. The pastor didn't die for those people. And we have to remember that people belong to Jesus. And that Jesus has placed those people... And to the pastor's care to help them grow in their Christian walk. I don't care how charismatic a man is. If that man selfishly uses and takes advantage of people. He has no business being a pastor. When a pastor gives somebody counsel. And they give people counsel all the time. That pastor has to be able to honestly ask himself. Is what I'm about to tell this person. Is the advice I'm about to give this person. For their own good. Is it in their best interest. And the best interest of the kingdom. Or am I telling them. For my own good. (laughs) And that comes up. Pastor has to make those decisions. If a pastor uses people. Then he may tell someone. That God wants them to do a particular thing. When it's really the pastor. Wanting them to do it. For some selfish reason. Give you an example. Sister Jenny. I will be getting married soon. And she's been such a blessing to us here at this church, a blessing to me and my wife. And I'm so glad that God's giving her a godly husband. And before long, uh, uh, she'll be joining her husband, the church he serves at, where she should be. 
And I'm thankful for the role that we got to have in her life before uh, she goes to be with her husband. But what if I, not wanting her to leave our church, not wanting to lose a good church member, what if I were to start using my influence as a pastor? Because I've had some influence on her in her life. That's what pastors do. What if I were to start using some of my influence to break that marriage up, to keep her single so I could keep her here? Say, Sister Jenny, now I don't believe that's the Lord's will for you. What if I were to do that? I wouldn't be acting as a fiduciary, would I? That would be cruel and selfish. And instead of seeking her best interest as a child of God, or the best interest of the kingdom of God, I would be seeking my own self-interest. A pastor can't be that kind of person. A bishop must remember he's a steward of God's treasures, not the owner of those treasures. A bishop must also be blameless in the sense that he's to be, look back in your text now, not self-willed. See that? He's to be not self-willed. We're members of the body of Christ, the Bible says. The church is the body of Christ. And, uh, and body members don't do their own will. Thank God. I mean, I'm glad that I'm gripping the sides of the podium up here. Because the head is telling them to do that and telling them to do my fingers like this right now. But if my hands decide to do their own will, they may start doing all that right there. That's called a disease. Isn't that right, Brother Neil? Brother Neil has to struggle with that with Parkinson's. Because the members don't always do what the head tells them to do. He said, well, I want them to do this, but I can't get them to cooperate Can you imagine the frustration Jesus has as the head of his body and his members won't cooperate? It's sickness. It's illness. And and God made us members of his body. And body members are supposed to do what the head tells them to do. And Christ is the head of his church. If a man doesn't pursue the will of God in his personal life, then he won't pursue the will of God in his church life. Fulfilling the will of God should be the motivating force behind every person we should get up thinking i've come to do thy will O god especially a pastor if a man is willing to compromise the will of god to fulfill his personal ambitions then that person is not blameless he is disqualified from being an elder paul said he must also be blameless in the sense that he's not to be look back in your text says not soon angry not soon angry a man that quickly loses his temper is not blameless as a pastor. You've got to have a pastor with a level head. I mean, God gets angry. Anger is not a sin. But you can't be soon angry. You have to have that anger under control. It has to come at the right time. Um, <laughs> suppose that you were in the mining industry back in the day and you were to be in charge of using dynamite. Has any of y'all ever used dynamite before? Maybe in the military you've used it? Did you use it legally? Okay, I'll make sure. Because you don't know. You don't know. With his background, you don't know. (laughs) All right. You actually detonated it. Was it valuable to you to know how long you had before it went off? Yeah. Yeah. So if that went off at the wrong time, it could hurt somebody. It could help if it went off at the right time, in the right place, under the right circumstances. There's a time to be angry. 
There's a time to use that anger, right? God is going to uh, blow up, in a sense, when Jesus returns. His anger, his wrath, is going to find its outlet upon the rebels. But a pastor can't be soon angry. The Bible says, if you're taking notes, in Proverbs uh, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14, verse 17... The Bible says, he that is soon angry deals foolishly. He that is soon angry deals foolishly. So a pastor has to deal wisely. Why? Because we're stewards of God's treasures. Edward Jones better be wise with money. Or you shouldn't be taking your, your money to them. A pastor has to be able to deal wisely. But if you're soon angry, you're going to be dealing foolishly. person that can't control his temper will be controlled by his temper. You see that? And the decisions that a pastor makes, or that a person makes in short-term anger, they can have long-term negative consequences. You don't want a pastor like that. Anger is an explosive effect. That's which why I use the, the thinking of dynamite there. It's an explosive effect. And sometimes... Uh, when we talk about someone getting very angry and acting out on that anger, we say they blew their top. You ever seen the icon, uh, the visual of someone being angry? What is it? It's the head exploding. Right? So you want that dynamite, you want the power there, but you want it to be released at the right time and accomplishing the right things. Jesus was angry, and how did he use that anger? He didn't beat up his enemies, but he did drive the money changers out of the temple. You see? It was used in a righteous way. And uh, so anger is when we can no longer contain ourselves. So we have to somehow release those feelings of displeasure. And sometimes we need to release the feelings of displeasure. As again, I said, God's going to release his feelings of displeasure on judgment day. And as Jesus did uh, with the money changers in the temple. But if a pastor is soon angry, then he's going to be releasing the feelings of his displeasure all the time. He's going to say things he shouldn't say. And he's going to hurt people. He's going to make rash decisions that weren't well thought out in his anger. Years ago, I knew a pastor in Deep East, Texas. Had a very bad temper. And he was telling me and a group of other men about a disagreement that he had with a man in his church. He said the man came to his house to talk to him about the disagreement. And so when he opened the door and that man wanted to talk to him about it, you know what the pastor did? He invited the man out to the street for a fist fight. And the sad part is the pastor seemed to be very proud about telling us about it. And the whole time, I couldn't help but listen to that story and think how wrong that whole thing was. An elder must not be soon angry. And he must be someone who is, look back in your text now, not given to wine. Not given to wine. The Greek word translated uh, given to wine here, it's a combination of two Greek words smashed together, compounded. The Greek dictionary gives us the idea of someone who associates himself with wine. The two words that literally mean in the vicinity of and wine. In the vicinity of wine. So someone who is associated with alcohol. Wine in and of itself, I'm going to preach the whole counsel to you. Wine in and of itself is not evil. There is nothing in this world that is inherently evil. Because the Bible says God saw everything that he made and behold it was good. 
me give you an example. The rock that Cain used to slay Abel was not evil. <laughs> the misuse of that rock was. You see the difference? So a rock is not evil. Alcohol is not evil. But the misuse of either is formation of alcohol is a natural occurrence so it has a place in nature and it has many good benefits when covid was beginning to spread for example uh, many breweries started turning the alcohol they made into hand sanitizer y'all remember that and i'm sure maybe some of y'all had plenty of extra hand sanitizer at the house i hope you didn't but maybe you did but they started using it and, and for that reason being able to use that alcohol as a disinfectant. For that reason, a lot of the Greek and Roman cultures back then, they would take alcohol, fermented alcohol, and they would put it in their water to help sanitize their water. Okay? And I believe that's probably what Paul was talking about when he encouraged another pastor, not Titus, but another pastor named Timothy. When he encouraged another pastor named Timothy to not just drink water only, but also a little wine for his stomach's sake. That's found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. How many of y'all have alcohol in your house right now? I'm going to raise my hand. Nobody does? How many of y'all have vanilla extract, pure vanilla extract in your house? You've got alcohol in your house. You've got alcohol in your house. The alcohol content of vanilla extract is the exact same percentage as vodka. Same percentage. You've got alcohol in your house. Alright? Unless you have the cheap stuff. Vanillin. Alright? But Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23. He said drink no longer water. And in the Greek that's no longer water only. Or no longer water by itself. But use a little wine. For thy stomach's sake, for medicinal purposes, and thine often infirmities. By this verse, we know then that a pastor's use or possession of wine or of alcohol is not against the Bible because he's being told to use it. But we also know that Paul told Timothy to use how much? A little of it. And we are told many places in the Bible to not be intoxicated with wine. So with all this understood, taking the whole package here, I believe Paul is telling us that an elder needs to be uh, strictly limiting his use of alcohol so that his mind stays clear and his decision-making capabilities and his walk with Christ is not prohibited by the introduction of alcohol into his body. The pastor should feel perfectly fine. Brother Richard, how can you give us an example of this? How many of y'all have NyQuil at the house? You've got alcohol at the house. Alright? Let's just be honest. NyQuil's full of alcohol. But I believe a pastor should feel perfectly fine taking a dose of alcohol. But I don't believe a pastor should be a recreational drinker. I don't. I don't drink at all. Not at all. I'm a teetotaler is what they would call us. Furthermore, Paul said a pastor should be, look back in your text, no striker. The illustration I used of the pastor that was soon angry earlier, earlier that uh, fits the bill, doesn't it? One invite the man, the church member out 
for a fist fight? Could you imagine me and Brother Andy doing that? You come up to us and we say, how would you like a punch in the nose? My goodness. The word striker here in the Greek, it means a quarrelsome person. We, you don't need to be the kind of person that wants to argue with someone and fight with someone. Else. Not just physically, but just argumentative nature and just want to quarrel with someone. And Jesus is a peacemaker. And he came to die for our sins so he could make peace between us and God. So Jesus naturally wants his church and especially his pastors to give his peace to others. So how can, a, how can a pastor minister to God's people if he's prone to quarrel with them all the time? He can't. Because of our fallen flesh. And man, we've all got it. Pastors too. Because of our fallen flesh. Let me tell you, I know by experience, keeping peace in the church is a hard enough task as it is. Someone says, well, uh, Glenda thinks she's better than everybody else. She drives a Cadillac. Those people from California are snooty. We don't like Californians. You see the way he looked at me the other day? I mean, that's the fallen flesh. Oh, they got their little group over there. Those Jeremini kids, look at them sitting around with everybody. They must not like their parents. You see? I mean, that's the flesh. And things like that get in somebody's mind. And then the next thing you know, the devil's working in their heads. And then you've got problems in the church. The church is hard enough as it is to keep peace between people. So if you have a pastor who's quarrelsome, he is going to set a bad example before the church. And he's going to stir and initiate trouble. And there's going to be drama all the time. Man, I don't like drama. I had enough drama for several lifetimes. I don't want any more of it. Lastly, a pastor must be somebody who is, look back in your text, not given to filthy lucre. Not given to filthy lucre. Now, lucre here is speaking about financial profit. Financial profit. For example, if a person's business is making money, we might say that that person's business is very lucrative. That lucre, financial profit. But filthy lucre, you might be able to understand now, is unrighteous financial gain. Unrighteous financial gain. What we would call today dirty money. Okay, that's dirty money. I don't want any part of that. When, when someone makes a lot of money on a particular crime, say they're uh, selling drugs, they're embezzling something, they're, or whatever, they're, they're making money on a particular crime, a lot of money, then they have to find some way to cover their trail, some way to be able to justify all the money they've suddenly received and make that illegal money appear to have been legitimately earned. And when they create this appearance, the process they go through, maybe they, they have a little side business on the side. And they, they show, they cook the books and show the business is what really made that money. Okay? And so when they create this appearance, it's called money what? Money laundering. In other words, they're cleaning the filthy lucre, the dirty money. Okay? And so they can't have, uh, be greedy of filthy lucre. The other day I saw a very sad video that a pastor over in Africa made, where he, uh, 
he tried to make himself look like Moses. He was at some big, big stones, big rocks. I'm sure they were fake, but they had some big stones. And he was at these stones crying out to God for God to help the poor, impoverished people there in Africa. And after he cried and begged God for such amount of time on the video, you could see clouds come over the sky and get dark. And you could hear what's supposed to have been God speaking to him. I have heard your cry. And then suddenly lightning comes down at the rock that he's at. And when lightning comes down in the videography, suddenly all these golden keys are surrounding the rock. And now, what he's doing, he's taking those golden keys, and for a certain amount of money, you can send him, he'll send you one of those golden keys. I'm sure they're plastic. But anyway, he'll send you one of those golden keys, and it's that key will unlock your earthly success. Isn't that good, Brother Doug? May I send off and get you. I don't know if he sends internationally or not. Unlock your financial system. You'll never have to blow up anything with dynamite again. Alright? That man is a fraud. That man, in the name of being a pastor, is ripping people off. He's stealing from them. That's filthy lucre. He's greedy for it. Greedy for it. That was his religious infomercial is what that video was. See? People see that and think, well, my goodness, they got God talking to him live on video. We need to send him our money now. But he's swindling people. And a man who is willing to make money dishonestly will be a disaster as a pastor. And all of us have witnessed that over the years, have we not? Plenty of dishonest religious swindlers. When you study the Ten Commandments as we close now, you're going to find the Ten Commandments begin with prohibitions. Thou shalt not, right, have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not. And then, after the prohibitions, then it enjoins people and gives them responsibilities. It turns from thou shalt not to what? Thou shalt. And it's the same way with the qualifications of a pastor. Paul begins with these negative commands, these negative qualifications. A pastor can't be this. A pastor can't be that. A pastor can't be something else. And then Paul moves to the positive things that a pastor has to be. A pastor must, however, be this, must be that, must be the other. So God willing... We come back next Sunday, we'll move forward in the qualifications of a pastor, and we'll eventually get from the, he can't be this, to he must be this. And with both of those, the, also Paul gives us qualifications that hedges about the pastoral uh, duties and gives us some parameters as a church where we can be able to say, that man needs to be behind the pulpit. That man needs to be out. <laughs> okay? And with that, we'll go ahead and close. And God willing, we'll take back up next Sunday morning. Thank you for your wonderful attentiveness. And uh, I was talking to Brother Doug this morning in Sunday school class and uh, teaching Bible lessons for Bible teachers next door. And, and uh, we was talking about the attentiveness of the people in Nehemiah chapter 8. It was very precious. 
And I tell you, you people always do a great job listening to God's Word. Thank you so much. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your precious Word. We thank you for the tenderness of the people. I pray, dear Lord God, that we'll apply this to our lives. Lord, not just, Father, I know we have a pastor here, Lord, and I thank you for that. But not just so they'll know, Lord, whether they need to keep me or get rid of me in the future if I do something wrong. But, Lord, also to apply these guidelines, Lord, the people we listen to on television, on the radio, on the Internet, on podcasts, that we'll be able to take these things and apply them faithfully, Lord, to who we listen to. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Be with these people as they go. Give them a safe trip back home, especially those who, like Brother Logan, who have a long way to travel. We pray for traveling mercies for him. And uh, we love you so much in Christ's wonderful name.